ESV from the cart. You can find that on page 552. Proverbs 31. Today we will be reading and studying together verses 10 through 31. You will recognize this passage immediately, I'm sure. I decided that uh, as we were studying through Proverbs for this summer, uh, when we came to the end, we would come to the final lesson in Proverbs and decided that I would save to the last the one that I am least experientially uh, able to teach you about, being obviously not a woman, and this passage being all about God's wisdom for womanhood. However, uh, the authority uh, of what we will hear today doesn't come to the experience of the minister, but rather through God's infallible word. And he will teach us all today as a congregation, not just the women among us, but he will teach us all today something of his wisdom for womanhood. Uh, this is a passage that has to do not just with the maybe roughly 50% uh, of you, of the fairer sex, uh, but this also is for the rest of us, because what, what affects one part of Christ's body affects the whole part of Christ's body. And so this is a word not just for our women, not just for our girls, this is also for fathers uh, who are raising daughters, uh, raising sons perhaps, and teaching them the kind of women that they ought to seek out in marriage. This is... For husbands, uh, encouraging their wives in godliness. This is for all of us together, as we hear today, God's wisdom for womanhood. And so we will turn together to Proverbs chapter 31 and read, uh, beginning in verse 10. But before we do that, please join me as we pray together and seek the Lord's blessing. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you are the one who has led us all this summer through your wisdom. We haven't touched on every aspect of what it means to be a wise Christian and to follow you, but we have seen much about how we may walk the path of life with you. We pray that today you would continue to open our eyes to see more of what it means to be your people, to acknowledge where you are at work, and to rise up and call blessed those in whom you are working. We pray for our women and for our girls especially that they would hear a word that perhaps contradicts much of what they hear in society about where their worth is to be found and what they ought to busy themselves with. But, oh Lord, we pray that through this word today, you would preach the gospel to their hearts and preach it to us all as we see more of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it. Proverbs chapter 31, beginning in verse 10. An excellent wife. Who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. 
Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and an errant word may he add a blessing as we study it together today. It is uh, somewhat of a cliché, I suppose, and so I, I guess that a number of you have heard, or at least aware, uh, of the annual mom salary survey. It's the kind of thing, cheeky little publicity stunt that comes out uh, normally around Mother's Day. Several companies put their heads together and they put out these uh, surveys where they try to quantify just what is a mother worth? <laughs> Numerically speaking, financially speaking, what would you have to pay if you had to outsource everything that an average stay-at-home mother does for her family? One version of the survey comes from the website salary.com, and they've done the hard work for us of, of listing an impressive number of roles that, that a typical mother fills in her family. Jobs like academic advisor and dietitian, and janitor and tailor and event planner, and counselor, and social media specialist, and the list goes on and on. And they take all of these jobs, and they crunch their going rates for these individual jobs, and they multiply that by the number of hours they think a typical mother might spend in each of these jobs, and out on the other end comes a suggested salary for uh, an average homemaker in the United States. Well, this year... Uh, based on a work week of 96 hours, <laughs> which is good. Based on a work week of 96 hours, uh, salary.com has projected the value for a stay-at-home mom to be quoted just over $178,000. Now, in the Boston area, that probably sounds low. <laughs> uh, it really sounds low if you compare it to Proverbs chapter 31, Verse 10, which tells us that an excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. Of that verse right there, verse 10. It's perhaps our first indication that the Bible does not deal with the issue of women the way that many people expect the Bible to deal with the issue of women. You know how it goes. There are people that are critical of Scripture, there are people who are critical of Christianity, and they love to tell you how out of touch Scripture is. It was written so long ago, we simply can't take anything that it says seriously. They love to tell you how, you know, in ancient societies, women were a possession. You could buy them, you could trade them, you could replace them if you got tired of them, and and that's probably the way the Bible thinks about women too, isn't it? They'll love to convince you that the Bible hates women, especially the Old Testament. The Old Testament, they would think, is, is only concerned with demeaning women and speaking down to them and putting them in their place. And by in their place, of course, they mean either in the kitchen or in the bedroom or in the birthing stool. They want you to see that the Bible really 
hates women, but the Bible doesn't hate women. You can see that, I think. You get a sense for it with the dignity, with the, the deep and abiding honor that this chapter places on women who fear the Lord. Think about it. Here we are at the end of a book that we've been studying bits and pieces of this summer. And all throughout this book, for 31 chapters, we have seen uh, exhortation after exhortation, instruction after instruction for young men, especially, to embody the principles of wisdom. How many times have we heard the words, my son? My son, keep your tongue. My son, guard your heart. My son, shun laziness. My son, plan for the future. Do not give in to the snares of pleasure. Do not give in to the snares of possessions. Work with your hands. Manage your resources. And after 30 chapters of instruction, we find at last that wisdom is embodied. And just like she is at the beginning, so here at the end, when wisdom is embodied in Proverbs, she's a woman. She's a wife. She's a mother. She's a woman of dignity and self-respect and fortitude and hard work. And she is priceless. Far more valuable than jewels, it says. Not every woman will end up married. In God's providence, not every woman will have her own children. Yet this chapter gives us one example, one, one form that wisdom takes in women who fear the Lord. And we're going to look at some of the aspects of this godly, uh, wise woman. Before we get into the details of the text, there's one more thing you need to know about this chapter, at least these verses here, and that is that this uh, is an acrostic poem. It's alphabetical. There are 22 verses. Uh, and in the Hebrew, the first letter of each of these successive verses corresponds to a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, a lot like uh, the sections of Psalm 119. <clears throat> and that tells us something important about this passage. It tells us, for one, that this passage was meant to be memorized. It was a device to, to take God's truth and hide it first in your mind and then in your heart. It was meant to be memorized, and it would have been memorized by every Jewish boy and girl growing up as they're called to rise up and call their mother blessed. So it, it helps to know that it's meant to be memorized. It's also helpful to know that because uh, this is arranged alphabetically, the logic of the text doesn't necessarily flow from one verse to the next. So although uh, I love to move verse by verse, what we're going to do today is look thematically. What are some of the, the aspects of wisdom in godly women that rise to the surface over and over again? What are some of the themes that we see? And I've, I've arranged today for us to focus on three themes of godly, womanly wisdom. First, we're going to look at the wisdom uh, of this woman's concern. The wisdom of her concern. And then, the wisdom of her chores. And finally, the wisdom of her character. Womanly wisdom in the wisdom of her concern, the wisdom of her chores, and finally, the wisdom of her character. Now first, the the wisdom of her concern. Who is it uh, that this wise woman is concerned about? Who takes up her time and her energy? Who is it that, that fills her day? Is she like uh, that fairy tale queen, mirror, mirror on the wall? Is she thinking about herself all the time? No, she's 
concerned with others. You can look very easily through this passage and see that her days from sunrise to sunset and even a little bit beyond those two boundaries. Her days are filled with two things. Her days are filled with work and they're filled with family. And those two things go together for this woman. Why is it that verse 15 tells us that she rises while it is yet night? Why is it that verse 18 says her lamp does not go out in the evening? Is it because those are the hours to get a little bit of self-care? Are those the only times that the children are finally asleep and she can hear herself think for once? No, she is up early before the sun because she is living by the virtue of self-forgetfulness. This woman is motivated by the joy of serving others. That is her concern. She lives by the joy of serving others. That means that she is concerned to serve her husband. It's interesting that the first detail we have about this woman, other than her, her, her precious worth beyond jewels, is not what she does, not what she says, not what she thinks. The first detail we get about this woman is what her husband thinks about her. It says in verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She has her husband's absolute and complete confidence. She doesn't just have his bank accounts. She doesn't just have his daytimer. She doesn't just have the run of the household. She has everything. In the language that we've studied already several times, she has his heart. The heart of her husband trusts in her. They have a relationship, perhaps, uh, like Luther had with his wife, uh, Katie. Martin Luther said, in all domestic dis, uh, duties, in all domestic duties, I defer to Katie. Otherwise, I'm led by the Holy Ghost. And that's the kind of relationship that we see here. He has uh, confidence in her. His heart trusts in her. There is no twinge of jealousy when she's out of his sight. If she comes and suggests that the family needs to make a pretty big purchase, and we get better get prepared for this, he doesn't think, you know, I bet she's probably just trying to get something nice for herself. He isn't worried about uh, the, uh, the counsel that she gives to him. He can talk about uh, his dreams and his ambitions and know that she's not going to be resentful or bitter. He knows that she has his best interest in mind because verse 12 tells us she proves time and time again she's concerned for him. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And notice that this is an, inter an internal commitment that she has. She's not concerned uh, for her husband, not concerned to do good for him only when they happen to be in agreement or when uh, he seems to be in a good mood or they're both tracking in the same direction. Uh, this is something, some commitment that she has within herself and actually it flows from her commitment to the Lord. She's concerned for her husband because she is committed to serving the man the Lord has put in her life. And she's concerned for others. That's what fills her days. She's concerned also for her family. Now you could infer that from all the work that she puts in. But verse 27 tells us pretty plainly. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. The idea here is that, that the wise woman is the lookout post. It's almost militaristic language. She's the lookout post for her family. She's the watchwoman. In fact, that's the same word showing up in this verse that shows up when the Lord speaks to his prophet Ezekiel in chapter 3, verse 17. 
And the Lord says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. What did it mean for Ezekiel to be a watchman? It meant that he had his eye constantly on what was going on in the children of Israel. He was watching out for those hidden sins, those faults that maybe they weren't even aware of, that somebody needed to, to bring to their attention so that he could also speak a word of wisdom and correct what was happening in Israel. The Lord said to Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman. And the Lord says here in Proverbs that the wise woman is a watchwoman for her family. She looks well to the needs of her household. She has a burden for others. You don't have to be a mother, of course, to, to have a concern for people that are around you. But I think it helps us to see that she is a mother. It helps us to make sense of this kind of concern for someone else because we naturally understand the way this works. As I am getting older and my children are getting older, I love to watch younger families become parents for the first time. <laughs> and it's not just that sort of sadistic sort of a, how much are you sleeping? It's not just that sort of uh, joy that you get when you watch somebody else suffering the way that you once suffered. But when you watch a young family become parents for the first time, you watch what is most important rise to the surface and push out everything else in their life. They go from the point that they thought they were pretty, pretty busy to the point that they legitimately have no time for themselves. And they've got to double down on what's most important. And so you do hear them saying things like, I never thought I would love anyone enough to wake up four times in a night. Every night of the week for months. But you see that happening. It's probably a, a cultural heresy anymore to say that the Lord really has wired mothers to be more nurturing, more caring, more attentive, more concerned for the good of their children than He has wired fathers. But it's true. And we understand this. Think about the language that we use. Why is it that we can easily speak of deadbeat dads? We don't even have a phrase in common parlance for mothers who have abandoned their children. It happens. We don't even have a phrase for it. We've got to think about, well, how do I, how do I say that? Well, if it's a father, it's a deadbeat dad. We understand there's, there's this concern that women have for their children. Why is it that when somebody is concerned for you... <laughs> And they want to make sure that everything's working out for you. They want to make sure that you're not making the wrong decisions. They want to make sure that you've got all the things that you need in life. You might say, well, just stop mothering me. We understand instinctively, just, just in a natural sense, the concern that a mother has for her children. But if this is true naturally, how much more concern will the spiritual woman be? The woman in whom the Lord is working His spiritual wisdom. The woman in whom the Lord has put His wisdom and His Word and His very own Spirit to give her a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone, that she is constantly working and fighting against those sins of laziness and self-centeredness. How much more concerned will this wise woman be for her children, for her family? And so the wisdom of a godly woman is going to be seen in her concern. She's concerned for her husband. She's Concern for her family, and even if she is single, even if she has no children or has no husband, she can still be concerned for her neighbors. See in verse 20, it tells us that she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. There's actually a play on words there. At the end of verse 19, uh, the word hands should be palms. At the beginning of verse 20, the word hand should be palm. 
She's working. She's working not only for her family, but it really says, verses 19 and 20, she puts her hands to the distaff, her palm to the spindle. She opens her palm to the poor, reaches her hand to the needy. It's this nice little uh, chiasm there in the middle, drawing our attention to the fact that she's not just concerned for what happens in the home, though she is. She's concerned, she labors, she works, she is, she is fastidious to see that she has something to give to those who are in need. Who are the ones that are in need around her? Maybe her, her neighbors. Maybe somebody in her community. Maybe a member of her church. Maybe it's in, in the retirement home down the street where older mothers sit with no one concerned about them, no one wondering what they're doing today. And she goes and she visits and, and she sits and she talks and she listens. But she's concerned. Wherever there's a need, wherever the Lord has placed her, the wise woman stretches out hands of concern to care for others. Now, the irony of all this is not lost on me. I realize that those same people who want to tell us uh, that the scriptures are outdated would love to see their middle-class, educated, white pastor standing here and telling all of the women in the congregation, you should live for your husbands. They would love to see that. It would be a, a sort of confirmation bias. See, there you go. All they want is to put women in their place and to tell them the best thing you can do is put your life on hold, your career on hold, your ambitions on hold, your desires on hold. Live for somebody else. There they go again. Those oppressive Christians. How predictable, how patriarchal we could say. Ladies, do not concern yourselves with caring for others because your middle class pastor thinks you should do it. Concern yourself with caring for others because your working class Savior modeled this kind of living for you first. Here's the power of the kind of concern that a wise woman has. When she's concerned to live and to serve those the Lord has placed in her life, her life looks strikingly like the one who came and gave his time and his effort and his very life to be a sacrifice for you. And to save you to himself. At one point in Jesus' ministry, all of his male disciples were bickering among themselves over who would be counted the greatest of the apostles. And Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45 says, Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What was Christ's concern in his flesh? It was to serve others. It was the joy of living for those the Lord had given him, to lay down his life as a ransom for his chosen children. And so the wise woman who follows her Savior is not going to be concerned primarily for herself. She's going to be concerned about how she can serve the people the Lord has put in her life. That's how you recognize her. You recognize the wise woman by the wisdom of her concern. Secondly, you'll recognize her by the wisdom of her chores. 
It's about time we talk about this dear, tired woman and all of her work. Uh, because as you look, it is practically the only thing we find her doing in these verses. It is exhausting just reading everything she does. One commentator says, uh, who could accomplish in many lifetimes what, what this woman accomplishes in these short verses? There is all kinds of work happening in the home, and she dutifully sets about doing it. Because that also is what the Lord has given her to do. I've mentioned it before, but our children have a book called If You Lived in Colonial Times. It's a little paperback with lots of pictures, and it, it talks about what life was like in New England a couple hundred years ago. And almost every time I read it, I get this little twinge of longing, and I, I'm, I get fed up with, with our fast-paced, connected culture, and I say to myself, sometimes I'll say out loud, wouldn't it be nice if we could just... Go back in time and live this simple life. 1732 in a little cottage here in New England. Wouldn't it be great? And my wife gives me that look that says, Are you out of your mind? <laughs> because while I'm being idealistic and nostalgic for something I've never experienced, she's being realistic. And she's the one who's thinking about, as the mother of this family, what would it take to raise our own sheep? And to shear said sheep, and to spin their wool into yarn, and to gather garments to clothe our three children. She's thinking about what would it take to grow our own food, and grind our own grain, and bake our own bread, and not as some sort of hipster hobby, <laughs> just to make sure that we don't starve to death. She's thinking about these things, and I'm not. I don't actually want to do those things. Sometimes <laughs> when I say it'd be great to go back in time, what I actually mean is I think I should shut my email off for a few days. <laughs> but there's a realism here that for the most of human history, and most of us, I think, would do well to have a wake-up call here, for the vast majority of human history, most people in most places at most times have had their days filled with back-breaking labor just to make it from sunrise to sundown. And this woman is no exception. This excellent woman is one who does not shy away from the work that the Lord has put in front of her. She is one who would rather not take the easy way through life. Verse 13 begins the theme. She seeks wool and flax, and she works with willing hands. Now this is a beautiful description of the godly woman, and tells us, for one, what she's doing. She's working. Uh, she is seeking out the materials that she will use to clothe her family, and so wool would be turned into warm garments for the winter month, and linen would uh, be turned into beautiful garments, or garments for the summertime that were more breathable. And, and really, in a typical Judean household, all of the females, adults and children, could spend practically all of their time doing nothing but providing food and clothing for the rest of the household. It was a never-ending task. And so what is she doing? She's working. Early in the morning, late in the evening, she's working. But verse 13 also tells us how she works. She works with willing hands. Nobody's coercing her. Nobody gives her a pep talk in the morning to say, you know, changing diapers really is worthwhile. That can be a hard thing to deal with. It can be hard, almost demoralizing, to deal with this question, the fact that most of the duties that fill a woman's day, even today in the home, many of them, are the kind of thing that are never recognized and they're never done. 
You can wash those dishes and there will be more. You can change that diaper and there will be another one. You can scrub the floor, it will just be dirty again. You can wash those grubby little hands and they're just going to go back outside and play in the dirt all over again. And how on earth are you supposed to work with willing hands when it feels like everything you do is constantly being undone by the people you're doing them for? How can you get to the point that you can be content in a job where you never get a raise despite what salary.com says you're worth this year? How can you deal with never getting a promotion? How can you deal with never completing a project that will change the world overnight? You can only do it if you recognize the honor in the humble tasks the Lord has given you. Brother Lawrence was a Roman Catholic monk in France in the 17th century. He lived in a monastery with uh, all the other monks, and, and his job, particularly in his monastery, was to work in the kitchen. To give himself to the domestic chores. He, he cooked the food, he cleaned up after the other monks, and that meant that very often, when the other monks were done with their meal and they would go off to their prayer services three times a day, Brother Lawrence, even though he was devoted to spiritual exercises, was not able to engage in the other things that the other monks were doing. And so he wrote a prayer for himself to remind him, uh, remind himself of the dignity of domestic duties. He hung it in the kitchen where he worked. And it said in part, Lord, you are the God of all pots and pans. Sanctify me as I wash the plates and boil the meat. Cause me to regard my time spent on my knees scrubbing the floor as holy as my time on my knees in prayer. So we need to recognize the honor, the humble task the Lord has given us, the dignity of domestic duties. But you notice in this passage that this woman is really a woman of means. It tells us, Verse 12, that she has maidens working alongside of her. She has other servant girls that if she wanted, she could just assign all the tasks that she didn't want to do. All the spinning, all the weaving, all the cooking, all the cleaning. She could give that to somebody else. It tells us she has means to clothe herself in fine linen and purple. She has the time to go near and far to gather foods that were just outside of the ordinary fare in the farmer's market. She can go and gather in new things and exciting things for her family. She's a woman who has responsibilities outside the home. She's something of an entrepreneur, actually. Verse 24 says that she has a textile business. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. She's engaged in agriculture. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. Where's her husband? Who knows? But she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, that is, with the money she's made doing some of these other things, she plants a vineyard. She is a woman that in her day and age has achieved things that most other women have not achieved. She is busy and industrious and entrepreneurial. If she wanted to, she is the kind of woman that probably would never have to lift a finger for all of these menial, mundane tasks around the home, and yet she works. She is productive. She redeems the time, no matter the task. She continues feeding and clothing and weaving and spinning because she's learned the dignity of domestic duties. It is not a slight against her to wash the dishes. 
Hopefully her husband helps very often. But it's not a slight against her to have to do some of these things. She's humble enough to believe that none of the tasks of her household are beneath her. She's humble enough to believe that the Lord is using her right where he has placed her. And that's how you'll recognize a wise woman. Whether she has a family or not, whether she has children or not, you'll recognize her godliness and the wisdom of her chores. You'll see it in the way that she finds honor and honest labor. But then perhaps the most predictable marker of a godly woman is the wisdom of her character. By the time you get to the end of this passage, you may notice how little you have heard about what this woman looks like. Practically nothing. A snippet about the clothing that she wears, linen and purple. Other than that, we don't know if she's tall or if she's short. We don't know if her teeth are straight. We don't know what dress size she wears. We don't know uh, if she has wrinkles on her face. We don't know that if when she was a young woman, she was the kind of girl that all the boys would have gone crazy for. We have no idea what she looks like. We aren't given any of the details that women and sometimes men typically obsess over, and we're not given those details because, quite frankly, they don't matter much. And they're not going to last very long. One of my favorite Proverbs, uh, Proverbs eleven twenty two, As a ring of gold in a pig's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. You can find women like that. They're actually not very hard to find at all, because everywhere they go, they attract a crowd. You simply have to look for the, the crowd of people who are following her around, her wonderful admirers, looking at the fact that she's got just impeccable skin and the best figure and her hair is so shiny and it bounces in just the right way when she walks down the street. And people are attracted to be around her and it seems that at first glance her whole world is just wonderful. It is an oyster filled with pearls and she can take her choice of whatever she wants. And then you watch some of the decisions that she makes. You stick around long enough to see her uh, this is not true of every beautiful woman, by the way, but some, you, you stick around and you watch them using their physical beauty to attract the wrong attention, to open the wrong doors. And 15 or so years later, you come back and the figure is gone. And the complexion is hardened and there is nobody left to pay attention to her. And if they could do it all over again, if they could go back and trade some of that beauty that fades away in an instant for wisdom that would last forever, I'll bet you every single one of them would take that. That's the point of Proverbs 31, verse 30. First line says, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. Now the word vain doesn't mean self-centered. You're so vain. Probably think this sermon. No, this is not, this is not what that word vain means. It doesn't mean self-centered. It means transitory. Flip over to the next page in your Bible. It's the same word that shows up in Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse two. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's what mere physical beauty is. It's a theory. It is fleeting. It is a puff of smoke that disappears as soon as you try to grab a hold of it. It does not last for long. And so we don't hear a word about the physical beauty of this ideal woman. 
Instead, we hear about her inner graces. We hear about the way that she carries herself. Verse 12. She dresses herself with strength. She makes her arms strong. Verse 25. The way she carries herself. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at time to come. This means that she is at least physically strong. Not because she's vain, uh, but out of necessity. Her life of hard work has given her mom muscle. She spends her days carrying grain and picking up children and weaving and doing all sorts of other work. She is not afraid to look her part. She doesn't go out every day and try to appear as this well-mannered, kept woman. She doesn't want to be just a dainty flower. She wears her labor. She wears the skill of her hands like an elegant garment. She is at least physically strong, but she's also emotionally strong. The only way you increase in strength is through exercise, right? How is it that she is able to laugh at the future? Well, through exercise. Because the Lord has walked through her past with her. And she's seen his faithfulness. She's been through adversity. Her hands have seen years of hardship come and go. And the Lord has held her up. And now she can look at the future with dignity. With a smile that knows that the Lord will sustain her through every trial. And whatever she looks like, a wise woman carries herself with strength and dignity and godly character. We also hear about the way that she speaks truth with kindness. This is verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Now, this woman has uh, hidden God's truth in her heart, and at the right moments, that truth comes out of her mouth. In fact, the words that are in this verse are pretty weighty. It doesn't just say that the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. It doesn't just say that she's any old teacher. Actually, the words is, uh, that, that are used are, uh, literally it says that the Torah of Hesed is on her tongue. The Torah of Hesed. It's Hebrew, but you already know those words, don't you? Torah means instruction, means Wise direction. It is the word that is applied broadly to the first five books of Moses. The law, sometimes called. And so the King James says that the law of, of mercy is on her tongue. It's the law. It's where uh, the Israelites would go to learn the heart and soul of their religion. And then it says the law of Hesed. If Torah was the heart of Judaism, Hesed was the pulse. That's that word that is often referred, uh, used to refer to God's sacrificial covenant mercy, his love, his faithful love for his people. And this wise woman has become a teacher of God's mercy. In the sense that she emulates her heavenly father in the way that she instructs those who are around her. Now the question is, who is she instructing? Well, at least she's instructing her children. In the home, from the time that they could sit on her knee to the time that they left the home, uh, for the last time, she is instructing her children. She probably also instructs her young maidens who are working alongside her in the home. Those who are younger that she has influence over. In the New Testament, Paul says that wise and godly women ought to help teach wisdom to younger women in the church. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, he says, Older women are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. You hear that language, to be concerned about the same things that these godly older women were concerned for. 
Older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. There are spiritual implications for what she's teaching. She's a teacher. She's a wise woman who instructs others in the character she's learned from God's word, and she helps younger women to grow in spiritual beauty just as she has grown in spiritual beauty. That's what we hear about her. We hear about the way that she carries herself. We hear about the way that she opens her mouth with wisdom and kindness. But finally, and most importantly, we hear that the wise woman walks in the fear of the Lord. Verse 30 again. The whole verse this time. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Here's the fountain from which flow all other characters, all other characteristics of the godly, wise woman. She is a woman who has ordered her life according to what God has said about her. She has ordered her life according to what God has said about her. And you know what that means. It means that she is not listening to what anybody else has to say about what it means to be a woman in the world. She does not listen uh, to her own sin that tempts her to discontentment and laziness. She does not listen to the lie that tells her that the happy life, the, the easy life, the carefree, responsibility-free, holiness life is Holiness-free life is the one to live. She is not moved by the latest research on the self-reported happiness of women who have abandoned traditional family values. She is not phased by new theories of so-called feminist liberation. She has submitted her whole being and her whole worth to the word of God. She fears the Lord. And that means that most significantly, she has already wrestled with the truth that even if she were the most excellent woman that has ever been, the most wonderful wife, the most excellent mother, impeccable in every way, even if that were true, she knows that that is not where her worth is to be found. Not in how well she cooks or sews or mothers or even how well she treats her husband. Her worth is found in her identity as a sinner, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Her identity and her worth is one who knows Jesus and walks with Jesus and listens to Jesus and knows that even on her worst days, when she screws up all those other, other things, she is loved by him because he has chosen her, not because she has earned it. It's from that identity that she can begin to live, to have concern for others, rather than that never-ending cycle of proving herself. Here, we, we need to deal, I suppose, with some of the ways that this passage can be misused. There are a lot of them. Maybe you've heard someone over the years. Typically on Mother's Day, you'll hear snippets of this passage being read. But there are lots of ways to misuse this passage in our own study, in our own lives. One, is, as we've already seen, is just to disregard it, just to put a big X 
on this passage, say, no, thank you. The Lord uh, doesn't have anything that I want to hear about what it means to be a woman and will just, just neglect it, just forget what it has to say here. That's one misuse of this text. The other misuse is, is to vilify it, to paint a target on the chapter, and, and to treat it as the most oppressive, most misogynistic propaganda uh, that has ever been written. But another more subtle way to misuse this chapter is to turn it into one of those checklists. I've seen them, and you have too. When I go to the grocery store and I stand in line and I see the magazines that are there by the checkout line, and all those magazines with all their lists of new techniques and new quizzes and new uh, questions to make your life better and easier and more meaningful. Eight easy steps to get along with your in-laws. Twelve questions to see if you married the right man. Six no-fail Thanksgiving recipes that will somehow still flop and make you feel like a failure. For some of us, there is a tendency to turn every good thing into another new law. And we could do that here. We could take this acrostic poem and we could say, here are 22 ways to be the perfect woman. Get your act together, ladies. Grab your bootstraps and pull as hard as you can. And then you'll make it. Then your worth will be far beyond rubies. Then you'll be a priceless woman if you can just do these 22 things. This isn't 22 new rules. It's one question. Do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? It's the beginning of all wisdom. It's where everything else comes from. It's the mold that shapes all godly character. And it doesn't matter if you are classically pretty or not so much. It doesn't matter if you're single or married, if you're the mother of 15 children, or the Lord in His providence has left you childless. Those things don't matter. In the grand scheme of things, the most important, the most beautiful aspect of your life as a woman is this. It's the wisdom that comes by walking in the fear of the Lord. Because godly women will always be known by the beauty of their wisdom. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word today, which has shown us a picture of the excellent life. We pray that far more we have seen the perfect husband. Not in any of the men sitting here in this room, but in Christ who came to give himself perfectly for his bride. Lay down his life as a sacrifice to wash her from the stain of her sin. All of us included, men and women, gathered together into one body that he presents to himself in splendor and without wrinkle or stain or any such blemish. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bind up the hearts of our women and of our girls, that they would know you and fear you and walk with you that you would give them the wisdom of a godly character, that they hear more of the Son, as you work more of your Spirit in them, and more for the glory of your own name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We come now to a table which proclaims to us the great gift of the husband of his church, Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners the perfect and spotless Lamb who gave His life as a ransom for many, the One who came to model for us what it is to truly